Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Good afternoon, Tinker Lack community. And on behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Brutecast, our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best in innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Krulak Center. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University, United States Marine Corps, any other agency of the U.S. government, or any other entities with which our guests here today might be affiliated. So today's episode merges two areas that we here at the Kulak Center care about, and we've done a lot of previous episodes on, and that's Wargaming and China. Earlier this month, the Center for Strategic and International Studies presented a report on a series of war games they ran, which simulated an attempted Chinese amphibious assault on the island of Taiwan. The results of these games generated much discussion about deterrence, defense against amphibious assault, and the cost such an invasion might impose on all parties involved. Taking us through these topics are Matthew Kansian, PhD, the game's designer, and Mr. Dan Rice, who's our own Team Krulak, China subject matter expert, who participated as a player in one of the games. So Matthew Kansian is a Marine veteran and an MIT PhD who studies military operations at the Naval War College as a contractor for Salex Solutions. He received his PhD in political science from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in 2022, where he concentrated in security studies and comparative politics. His thesis was about the motivations of combatants and the effects of training based on a survey of 2,301 Kurdish Peshmerga fighters during their war against the Islamic State. He also holds a master's in law and diplomacy from the Fletcher School and a BA in history from the University of Virginia. He was a captain of Marines and deployed to Sangin, Afghanistan as a forward observer in 2011 in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. And then we welcome back to his second appearance on the broadcast, Mr. Dan Rice, who is our China military and political subject matter expert at the Krulak Center. He also serves as a non-resident fellow at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies and is the COO of the open source geopolitical intelligence company, Foreign Brief. He holds a master's in strategic studies from Johns Hopkins SIAS and is a graduate of the Hopkins Nanjing Center. He previously lived in China and speaks fluent Mandarin. So gentlemen, thank you both for your time today and uh, really excited for this discussion because this game, the games and the outcomes in the report uh, have definitely caught a lot of attention because this is one of the sort of the, the big problem sets that, you know, that, uh, you know, DOD as well as us in the Marine Corps here specifically, you know, looking at very closely. So I look forward to a great discussion. And then to uh, Matt, I'll turn it over to you for, uh, for, for getting us going. Hey, thanks so much, Ian, for uh, having me on here. So um, I... I've run this series of war games over the last year uh, with my co-authors, uh, Mark Kansian, my dad, who was a retired colonel, and Eric Higginbotham, who uh, was in the Army many moons ago uh, and is now at MIT and uh, is probably known for his study while he was at RAND, the U.S.-China Military Scorecard. So um, Eric and I have been designing and, and running this game for several years now. Um, so it was great to have the opportunity to, to uh, go through this series with CSIS and to play with great people like Dan. So I'll give a brief overview about um, the project first, and then we'll, um, before going into our, our Q&A here. Um, so there's the, the project, how we designed the war game, which is different than I think a lot of um, unclassified war games, uh, the outcomes of that, 
what the the casualties were in uh, and how that relates to the operational outcome, and then where we where we th what we think that means. And I'll particularly focus on the Marine Corps uh, for this one. So it was uh, funded through a generous grant by Smith Richardson. Uh, so we're very grateful for to for for them uh, for for funding our research here. Um, based off of the system that Eric and I have been have been working on for several years now and did 24 games on U.S. Uh, fighting China during an attempted invasion of Taiwan, and then one of just Taiwan stand, stands alone. Uh, and we varied the different scenarios and assumptions between each one of these games uh, in order to allow to test, okay, what assumptions are consequential, um, what uh, what really makes a difference, if this changes, what really changes the, the meter on the, the, uh, on the results and the outcomes. Um, and then got to try out a bunch of different strategies that, that way too. So, a few things about scope conditions, academics. We're, we're kind of have been steeped in uh, PhD land for a while, so they've taught me how to be tedious. Um, so, we want to say that this is not inevitable, right? That there's not there's it's not guaranteed that war will occur between the U.S. and China. Uh, there are many other things that China could do, like a blockade or uh, some sort of coercive bombardment campaign. Uh, we only looked at conventional conflict, not nuclear escalation, I mean, although people obviously often brought up the nuclear parameters. The only thing that that would impact on the operational fight is decisions about trying to avoid certain escalatory measures, like striking the Chinese mainland. And some games we played that the U.S. was not allowed to strike the mainland because of fears of nuclear escalation. And that we're not making an argument for or against the U.S. defense of Taiwan. We're just trying to provide people with the what we see as the most rigorously derived um, facts we can about what this campaign might look like. So for this war game system that Eric and I have been building, um, you know, there's thousands of counters. It's set in 2026. Uh, each turn, there's an operational map rather uh, that's 600 kilometers across and then a uh, actual map of Taiwan that we'll look at in a second here. Um, so we have everything from Cyber, space, aircraft, surface ships, ground forces, uh, down to submarines. Try it. So try to have uh, holistic models of all of those um, elements of, of warfare and bring them together through the war game. So the map's very large. It's not uh, a particularly fun or riveting game. Uh, maybe Dan will disagree, but um, it's designed to be analytically rigorous and not necessarily to be fun. Uh, another big feature of it is that each turn is three and a half days, where normally in a lot of war games and DOD war games, they'll be the turns will be, uh, I mean, maybe 12 hours, uh, maybe e even um, yeah, maybe a day, and that you try to get through three days or something. Um, but this tries to go through the whole scope of, uh, of a campaign over three, four weeks to try and get a better feel about what the, the operation looks like. On the Taiwan map, you can see there's uh, we, individual battalions are laid out. Um, this one, it doesn't not, you know, Red's trying to establish a beachhead in the in the south. They've got some paratroopers who are being surrounded by Taiwanese reinforcements, and they've seized Penghu in this particular game that we've got a snapshot of, rather. But that uh, each one of these rules that we do is based on operations research rather than uh, playability, game playability. So um, when we look at Eric and I have been looking at historical conflicts, um, projected uh, models of weapons effectiveness, and then try to integrate those together through uh, modeling and simulation in order to come out with a, uh, a percentage 
uh, likelihood of, for example, if you're one kilo submarine searching in a 600 kilometer across box, and there's this uh, CSG uh, carrier strike group there um, going in, in a random pattern, what is, when are you likely to find it? And you get a distribution of outcomes after you run that simulation 10,000 times, and then translate that into a 20 sided die roll, right? I'll get a little bit more detail into some of these uh, in, in the next couple slides to give people an idea about our data sources and, and how we model those together, right? So if you ever wanted to launch an anti-ship cruise missile, which is something the Marine Corps is very excited about, um, that you have different uh, uh, data sources, there's different steps that are all probabilistic, that are all stochastic events, right? And so you look through history uh, and from date, different data sources about what they project those probabilities to be. So you can read here just as well as I can. There's sort of failures to launch, failures to travel of missiles. Then there's interception through different phases, long range interception with standard missile two, then with ESSM, then with the CWIS, then some sort of uh, NOLCA or electronic warfare. Terminal guidance, a lot of times seekers don't work. Uh, what percentage of the time is that? And then some uh, model of damage, how much that would do to a ship, right? So we get probabilities from all these different sources for all those different phases, run those through a Monte Carlo simulation uh, 10,000 times, and then get a table of results uh, that we think is, is the best informed that we could, so that every time we roll a 20-sided die, we can get Okay, if you fired 25 missiles, how many of these leaked through and, and struck a ship and what were the results? And you roll the die and see where you come out with. Another example that is very critical to the game is um, uh, air, attacks on air bases with tactical ballistic missiles. So um, this, is, uh, this is one where historical data is obviously not that great. I mean, obviously in the wake of Qasem Soleimani, um, the Iran attacked us uh, and al-Assad, but we, we didn't have a lot of aircraft there. Uh, there's indica indications that, you know, we got prior warning. So this requires a lot more uh, speculation based on uh, hypothetical uh, weapon performance, right? So this is if the DF-16, um, I believe, in, in this picture, right, which sort of has a comparable, seems to have a comparable warhead size to a tomahawk, and it spread cluster munitions at a similar had a similar number of submunitions in the same rate as a tomahawk of comparable class. That could cover an area about this size of a circle, right? So then you say, how many circles would you need to completely cover all the tarmac at? And this is Jazdif Nyutabaru, which is uh, one of our our favorite um, bases in in Kyushu, right? So this this is how we come up with, okay, this is the number of missiles that you would need in order to completely cover all the possible tarmac space at Mutabaru. And then, of course, there's interception before then, there's some amount of planes that are up in the air, et cetera. However, um, we try to just uh, come up with, with the best models that we can of these events, even if there's not good historical analogies. Then we get to actually playing the game. Um, we have just a US and China team. Most of these games, uh, Eric and I are just playing by ourselves um, and trying out different strategies and different uh, scenarios. But sort of half the games, we got outside players like Dan to come and play, uh, who would give us different insights about how they think, um, what they think optimal strategies might be. They would try out different things. 
uh, give us feedback about the rules and our assumptions. And so in that way, we're sort of able to uh, refine our project with, with the help of these subject matter experts here. So the outcome, um, uh, there's sort of two different parts of it, right? There's the out operational outcome and then the, the casualties. So here we're we'll deal with the operational outcome first, which is that in the base scenario of what we thought were the most likely conditions, um, blue either has an outright victory or there's a stalemate on the island leaning blue. And what that means is that there's still tens of thousands of Chinese soldiers on the island of Taiwan, but that um, they are cut off. The amphibious fleet is almost completely destroyed. And so that then it's a sort of a matter of time before uh, then you need to start looking at peace off ramps, right? Where uh, how do you get this war to stop with some amount of face saving to try to not go to that nuclear step, right? So in any case, uh, you have to go very pessimistic in order for um, in order for the U.S. to to lose, right? Um, obviously, Taiwan stands alone. Uh, China can do that, um, but you almost have to go to uh, the the most extreme scenario of Japan not allowing the U.S. to to base forces in in, in order for this to not work for the U.S. However, despite the operational account, uh, outcome, you're still going to have uh, much higher uh, losses of uh, uh, Equipment than we saw during the uh, during the war on terror, and um, maybe you know personnel casualties in, in three weeks of, of fighting probably equal to maybe half or or uh, three quarters of what we lost during all the twenty years of Iraq and Afghanistan, right? So this just lays out uh, how many aircraft the U.S. and Japan are going to lose in these uh, in the base scenario, what we think is most likely pessimistic scenarios and then optimistic scenarios that favor blue and how many ships losses, right? So China not losing as many aircraft because the Chinese plan really has uh, built is built around destroying U.S. aircraft in Japan. But they're obviously going to lose a lot more ships because they start off with all their Navy over there and destroying the ships is the, the critical um, seam in their plan, right? So a few uh, overall conditions that that blue that need to happen in order for blue to uh, succeed in this. One is Taiwanese ground forces need to hold the line. There's uh, any work towards asymmetry of, of air forces and, and seaborne forces is is uh, certainly helpful because right now their their uh, navy and their air force are probably going to be destroyed within the initial few days. Um, but the ground forces need to stay intact, and if the ground forces don't, then um, it almost there's almost no way for blue in, to prevent the landing. Next, uh, there's no Ukraine model for Taiwan. We can't just say, oh well, we're going to supply Taiwan and um, and we're not going to get directly involved and and. Um, but any sort of delay gets the worst of all possible worlds where China gets a very strong foothold ashore uh, without, and then the U.S. suffers more casualties and has greater risk of escalation at the end of that. By delaying two weeks, you make the war go on longer and you're still at war with China, except with an actually increased risk of there being an operational failure that they get Taiwan and you're at war with them anyway. Third condition is uh, Japan. The assassin forces agreement is somewhat ambiguous. It says that um, the U.S. must consult with Japan. Um, consultation is you know, sort of ambiguous. Does that mean that they need to give us permission? Does that just mean that we need to tell them what our plans are? Uh, certainly Japan's military uh, and diplomatic thinking seems to be that they would go with us uh, or that they certainly would allow 
U.S. forces to operate out of U.S. bases in Japan, but that's a critical condition. And finally, the U.S. has to have uh, this mass long-range strike capability, um, and that this becomes an almost uh, too easy exercise if we have uh, thousands of long-range anti-ship missiles like the JASM-ER, but that if the JASM-ER does not work against ships, then this becomes a much diff more difficult project, right? Well, my dogs decided to... Uh, move around some books in the background, but I'm almost done here. So what does this mean for the Marine Corps in particular? So uh, I've just laid over the southern and northern beaches on Taiwan, the range of the naval strike missile, right? So this just makes the point that um, <clears throat> there aren't partners or allied countries that have territory within range of the, the naval strike missile on these beaches, right? So we are not going to be able to pre-deploy to Yonaguni and be able to reach the northern beach with naval strike missiles. Furthermore, uh, um, I mean, that, that, that probably would be a difficult political ask in the first place. But following on to that, um, once in terms of getting U.S. Marines to Taiwan after the fact, uh, China's obviously developed some very sophisticated ISR. You have the overhorizon backscatter radar, the Xiaogan series of constellations, in addition to AEW, and that it, it, there's a lot of facile talk about the, or not facile, but sort of simple talk about the U.S. Uh, Marines, we're going to move around and we're going to be nimble, nimble and agile that just sort of ignores these uh, difficult problems. Now, China has very delicate kill chains also, but that uh, it, it's going to be very difficult to count on those not working and us being able to, to defeat them. So with that, I'll uh, turn it over to Dan, who will be able to comment on uh, his time uh, as a player and what he thought. Uh, sure, I can make some just general broad comments about the iteration that I played. And first, you know, Major Brown, thanks again for having me on the broadcast. It's great to be here. And Matt, congratulations to you and all of your co-authors on getting the report out and a job well done on this. So. Uh, so my general comments are, and I think Matt covered a lot of them, in his presentation, but in the iteration that I played, um, I believe it was one of the more pessimistic scenarios in, wherein China had a strong first strike advantage and carried out several large strikes on US forces in different positions. The primary one there being on Guam. Um, so the overall trend that was noticed in the iteration was that wherever the U.S. amassed force was where China would strike, with the exception of Japan. And that was because in, in that game, we actually elected to pull assets off of Japan in order to make that prize less valuable for China to strike, uh, which essentially meant that Japan stayed out of the fight for at least the first week, I believe it was, until enough assets flowed there to warrant a Chinese strike on, on the bases there. Some of the other things, like, like Matt mentioned, there is a, there's a range issue involved with getting close to Taiwan and still being able to strike. But what we saw a good value in was in MLRs on some of those farther out islands, being able to strike ships that were creating a picket line on the eastern side of the Taiwanese island. So there is some value there, at least in the game that we played, um, but again, limited in terms of munitions as well as range in itself. The other big component to this was submarine warfare played a really large role, uh, at least in the initial phase of trying to break some of that line and trying to get access to the island from Blue's side. Um, and then from there, 
again, as Matt mentioned, it really became how many long range anti ship missiles do you have in your inventory that you can actually carry over carrying out strikes with things like B2s and B52s for long range strike from Alaska. So you have to have a tanker bridge set up and then you're firing from long range standoff range to actually strike either ports or ships on their way over. And so those those are some broad takeaways just to just to get us kicked off. But Ian, over to you on uh, some specific questions. All right, great. And thank you uh, to Matt, Matt and Dan both for uh, laying the stage here. But I had a couple of initial things to um, to get out there. And I guess, Matt, the first um, first one to you is in for all the different iterations of the game, like what was the total time frame you guys were gaming out? You know, with every turn being three and a half days, were you looking at outcomes over weeks, over months? And with that, were there any uh, any other political, diplomatic, um, economic assumptions or considerations either at the very beginning or the very end of those that that time frame for those games that potentially um, influence player decision making? you know, during the game, you know, like if I know I'm only going to play a game for a month, I might not have certain, uh, certain diplomatic or economic considerations. Whereas if the game like went for a year of game time. Um, most of the, the games went, we, we played for three or four weeks. Um, in terms of, uh, assumption, how a longer war, uh, would, would play out. I, I don't think that, um, so right, we're we're just focused on this operation, right? So it's the first battle of the next war, and this sort of larger. Well, where does where does it go from there? Uh, does China just um, you know do you find some off ramp of well, China declares victory and you you bring back the soldiers to the mainland and um, you know you give them some sort of face saving bilateral meetings, and you're able to get to some sort of new peaceful status quo. Or does this keep going forward? Um, the problem with it, I mean, keep going forward. This argument is that if you try the invasion and you fail, uh, you saw the Chinese ship losses numbers that, you know, they've lost over 100 major surface combatants. You can't really, they can't really go forward. It's not like, well, well, you're going to try the invasion. If the invasion fails, then we'll go to blockade. Um, you've really um, lost that capability. Uh, so I don't think that there's the extended timelines is um as relevant to the success of an invasion um as it is to other things in terms of other sort of political assumptions so uh people ask well what about nato what about europe and, and completely irrelevant um to the to the uh to the operations in the first month um right and even if they had advanced warning, I mean, then and they tried to sail the Queen Elizabeth all the way to the other end of the ocean, it'd be, it'd be like the you know the Russian Baltic fleet, you know, like the fleet that had to die. Um, it's uh, like adding one LHA to the mix does not do do anything. So um, these sort of uh, a, a lot of these discussions miss out on the sort of the larger point. And then the other, I mean, the other thing is if China takes the island. There, there's no going back. I mean, it, it's impossible for the U.S. to retake it. Uh, so that uh, I think that in terms of the fate of Taiwan, it is decided within uh, weeks, and that past that, it's not relevant. Yeah, if I can just add something really quick as well. So Matt mentioned the the partners, places like European partners, how they didn't play in. But I also, and Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, Australia, I don't believe even played in this scenario beyond potentially being able to base out of there for a long range strike. 
And I think one of the reasons for that as well is that tyranny of distance of actually being able to flow your assets to that AOR or to Taiwan specifically in that short of a time frame is incredibly difficult across those really long ranges. And it's also one of the reasons why, you know, when we had to decide, okay, and you know, full clarity, I played blue, uh, but when we decided where we were going to conduct our long range strike out of Alaska was actually almost equidistant to Taiwan from Australia. So the distance there is really tremendous. Great, thank you. All right, next question. Um, I was scribbling this down, but it kind of ties into the first one in the chat here from um, from Baskins and all. So I'll try to sort of tie the two together. Um, so I was my question was um, how were command and control, command authorities, and different national approaches to you know things like independent decision making. You know, like you know American side, we we teach mission command and pushing authority down. I would imagine the PLA is more of a, a centralized control authority, but were was any of that framework put into how the players interacted? And then this ties in the question from the chat, which is talking about the will to fight in terms of you know how how are American Taiwanese American Taiwan allied uh, or supporters versus PLA, you know their uh, their their morale and their ability to sort of stand to on the battle in this very intensive, highly violent battlefield, were, were those sort of two pieces included at all in any of the scenarios? Yeah, so we, we tried to get to um, will to fight in a couple excursion cases, either modeling that the Chinese through SOF and, and cyber were able to decapitate the Taiwanese government and then implement delays where other theaters commanders weren't able to um, support each other for some period of time. Um, and then in terms of sort of poor national will to fight that they, uh, in some excursions, they fought at sort of 75% effectiveness of, of comparable size, uh, Chinese forces. So, um, those are sort of with the excursion cases are the ways that we tried to slice at these different issues of, well, would C2 work better? Would it work worse? Um, we talk about, um, uh, right, we, we we project a lot of capabilities to China, but they do have this very rigid hierarchical system, and they have to execute some very um, uh, very tenuous kill chains in a very quick time in order to get U.S. surface ships. So, um, uh, so it's it's not 100% obvious that this is going to work to their their to their advantage. Um, being a being a highly, and then you have an advantage uh, a situation where they get on the beach. And the uh, uh, the commissar says go right, and the military commander says go left, and you 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 this could not work out at all for them. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. Uh, so I got one last question, and then I'll just start going through the ones in the chat here. But you know, when I talked about the um, U.S. Air Force, Navy, and the Marine Corps participation, was there any United States Army play at all in this? Um, you know, whether you know, some of those forces might have been rushed to the island initially if there were time or any attempt to bring in army uh, forces of any sort afterwards. Yeah, we had people try to bring army brigades onto the island. We had a active duty U.S. colonel play one of the games and he said, uh, I want to bring in a uh, brigade. And we said, OK, um, you know, there's 42 major surface combatants east of the island. He said, yeah, I'm going. It's like, okay, well, we, you know, we rolled the die and you ran over our Renhai 
uh, okay, and it shot down a third of your aircraft. Uh, do you want to continue? <laughs> he says, I'm going in. I'm like, okay, you're running into Chinese cap now, and uh, they shoot out. I mean, they're going to slaughter your C-17s, and we gave them a, a battalion on the island just sort of out of pity, but um, anything that doesn't get there before D-Day is not getting there within the first month. And getting forces to there en masse uh, before D-Day is a Cassis Belli, is essentially a de declaration of war on China. So um, I don't see that as very likely. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I just was curious because, um, you know, it, it's obviously, you just look at it and it's pretty clearly a, a maritime and an air fight, but I was just curious if there was any effort, any attempt made and sounds like at least one person tried, good old college try. Okay, yeah, I'm just going to go through the Sorry, Dan, Thank go ahead. Brown. Yeah, just want to throw something in. That last point that uh, Matt just made, it is, it is one of the extreme limiting factors in our ability to actually help Taiwan out pre any sort of conflict. It's that he's right. If we decide to station any sort of army troops or even Marines in an overt capacity on Taiwan, that crosses China's red line in terms of them saying, okay, this is might be the appropriate time to use military force against the island. And there's multiple red lines that China's laid down, which makes that specific instance of trying to support Taiwan any way we can very, very difficult to achieve. And we're trying to get after it now by selling missile systems, right, in order to make that porcupine strategy. But that falls in that very gray kind of not too much, not too little, just enough to support Taiwan without you know, taking China off category, but anything beyond that is, is dangerous. Okay. Actually. So yeah. So that actually leads me to kind of a, a branching part from that question, which is um, Matt, I know you'd mentioned that there were some instances where like pieces of the MLR were put on some of the outlying islands of Taiwan, you know, to help extend the range of those missiles and impact the PLA pickets. Were there any instances where uh, there were any attempts to build up forces on some of those Japanese owned islands that are relatively close to Taiwan, but, you know, belong to the Japanese government. Yeah. So there are some islands that I mean, I showed Yonaguni as uh, the closest island, Japanese island to Taiwan, and it still does not is not within range of the beaches. Right. So you're talking about the Chinese trying to, um, you know, maybe go through the Ryukyus um, and uh, that we have pre-positioned some forces there and that they haven't figured that out. And then maybe you get some shots in at them. Um, it's, uh, it's just also not a lot of, uh, uh, missiles too. So if you have a whole MLR and you replace the cannons, I don't think they've quite finalized it, but if you replace the cannons one for one, uh, with, uh, of, of, of a regiment one for one with naval, these, uh, nemesis, right. That's 36 missiles on 18, um, on 18 of the uh, uh, JLTVs, and then you maybe have one or two reloads. In the scheme of these things, this battle, that's that's not that many. Um, so it might be more useful as a uh, recon element, but then you're talking about, well, what, what, do you, what do you really, unless you have over the horizon radars, over the horizon passive sensors maybe would be helpful, um, but that, um, that other than that is sort of utility is pretty limited. Okay, and then um, were there any sort of back to Dan's points, like the red lines, like would any possible buildup on those Japanese islands, would that have changed or did it change, you know, the Chinese force posture at all in any of the scenarios? No, I, I don't think it's very 
significant. It's damaging, certainly, um, but it's it's not a significant variable. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, I'm done with my set, so I'm going to start going through just the ones here. Um, first one from Francis Heritage uh, is asking about how sea mining was taken into consideration in any of these scenarios, especially for the Taiwan stands alone scenario. And, you know, just again, looking at the map, obviously mines could play a, a significant role in impacting a possible landing. Yeah, so um, the sea mines on, on both sides uh, were, were deployed. The um, Chinese primarily, we believe, would try to do them as an anti-submarine measure uh, to, to isolate their amphibious force uh, against US SSNs. Um, the Taiwans face a, a difficult problem where they have to, they have to then decide that the war is coming by putting mines out in into um, into the Taiwan Straits, right? So you you can't ever be a hundred percent sure that the Chinese are are bluffing or that they're actually going to try to attack you at this point, uh, and you have to then make that decision that yes, this is this is the time that the balloon's going up, and we're going to put sea mines uh, between us and them. Um, so it's it's very politically difficult and then sea mines it's not just that you know one or two of them certainly i mean you can you can hurt ships but in, in order to have militarily decisive effects you're if you look at historical minefields there you're talking about thousands of sea mines right and the chinese also have plans to to deal with sea mines that, that this is part of their their force so um I think that it would be very helpful for Taiwan to to develop this sea mining capability, but that it, it presents them with very difficult political decisions. And I guess kind of with that, what about, you know, mining undertaken by, I, I guess, going back to, you know, sort of Dan's point, like the, the U.S. Navy or Air Force could not put mines out in the Straits before the conflict. That would be an obvious uh, cost's belly. But after the fact, uh, were there any attempts by U.S. Navy or Air Force players in these scenarios to seed additional mines from our side, you know, or do we not have enough mines to really contribute to that in a meaningful fashion? So, yeah, the the problem is like, what mines are you, what are you putting them there with, right? Um, you, you're obviously not getting surface ships there. You're not getting any U.S. surface ships within uh, hundreds of nautical miles of, of Taiwan. You'd be lucky to get it within, you know, FA-18 sortie range for one sortie. Um, and then are you going to try and fly your F-18 over all these Chinese surface ships in order to drop mines? No, that's, I mean, that you'd rather fire a, a, some some longer range missile. So there's a quick strike ER, extended range quick strike, that's sort of uh, modified, you know, you're talking about maybe 40 kilometers range. But unless we were to develop some sort of powered quick strike, uh, quick strike is, is this, this family of air-delivered air mines that we have. Uh, unless you developed a powered quick strike, that it wouldn't be very beneficial. But I do think that a, a powered quick strike would be very helpful. But this is the sort of, you know, it requires the Air Force to take on an anti-naval mission that it's somewhat loth to do. So um, it, it's one of these things that that doesn't happen, despite being probably a good idea. Great, thank you. Okay, I have a, a couple questions here um, from several audience members, so I'm going to pull these ones together. But this goes kind of into more detail about the you know other regional powers um and potential allies and kind of i'm going kind of from the bottom up here but we know like in the last few days obviously after the game itself was the games were played out you know but there's been a, a sort of a change in the philippines agree to expand american basing down there um yeah for either one of you uh are there any uh were there any 
de decisive or significant actions by, you know, either being able to base things in the Philippines or, or other countries in that region um, that had a significant impact one way or the other on the scenarios that were played. And, you know, we talked about the tyranny distance and also obviously like if Japan says you cannot use your bases, uh, that's, that makes everything else very, very hard. Um, but were there, were there some, some variants in which a, a significant ally basing or permission to do something had a significant effect? So, um, you know, our, obviously our other ally is Korea. Um, but you, I would, I would be very, I, 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 if you could find a Korean expert who said that they would want to be involved in this fight, I would be very, I would be shocked. Uh, cause the ones that we talked to say, um, no, we have, we have no interest in doing this whatsoever. Um, so the Philippines has this, uh, additional basing. It'll be interesting to see what this actually means in practice. Um, they're obviously very worried about a South China Sea conti um, contingencies. Uh, obviously, the, the maritime militia has been uh, pushing them out of fishing areas, expanding these shoals. Um, and so I think that there's some, uh, you know, I think that's what they're concerned about. They're not as concerned about getting involved in a, a intervention over Taiwan. Uh, and certainly it would be helpful to have additional military airports that are within range, but that these are equally within range of Chinese uh, land attack missiles, the same ones that can cover um, Honshu and, and Kyushu, right? So that um, it, it's helpful to have additional ramp space that the Chinese would need to bombard, but that um, certainly not a, a game changer. Um, if, if you look at um, uh, the, if, if you remember the, the map that I put up earlier, if you got to you know, this island in the Bashi Strait in the Philippines, then certainly that would be, give you good naval strike missile if you're talking about an MLR. Um, and probably the Chinese are going to have to transit some ships through there in this contingency. So that, that would be helpful. Um, but that that's, again, talking about doing that beforehand to get permission to go to this island and and then place Marines. Thanks, Dan. Any from your, the game you played, anything to to add or elaborate on that? Um, so just thinking about the iteration I played, I don't think we had access in the Philippines. I think there might have been like one MLR somehow made its way onto one of the islands over there. So it didn't really play into that scenario. Um, but even speaking more broadly about real world applications of this, I mean, Matt covered almost everything that's relevant to it. But one of the other key things to think about is the combat radius of aircraft that are even on the Philippines and the potential for having to tank those aircraft if they can't make a full trip or at least, you know, if they're engaged in a dogfight over or running cap over Taiwan, they're going to use a lot of fuel. They're going to need some sort of refueling to get back and uh, tankers are very vulnerable, right? So it all depends on how you can flow your logistics to support that effort over the island while still being survivable. But I think, you know, bottom line is that Matt said it right. A lot of those bases are already within the strike range of missiles based in mainland China. So they'll have some effect, um, but I think primarily for the South China Sea rather than Taiwan. Great. Thank you. Okay. Uh, again, uh, bundling, a, bundling a couple of questions here together. Um, you know, you're, you're gaming out a scenario uh, with potentially in a region where there's lots of different countries that ha are going to have interest or security concerns. Did you bring in any players from any of those sort of regional governments, you know, military or civilian staffs? And obviously Japan, we're probably, you know, getting them in the room would be significant. 
Um, did you have any any Australians? Any you know, I, you know, it sounds like probably not any South Koreans, uh, but any of those other other nations there that would potentially be involved or impacted were were they players at any point in any of these games? Yeah, we had people from the uh, Taiwan you know cultural office because uh, they don't have an embassy, right? Um, so they've uh, a civilian um, who is a fellow at CSIS and a um, uh, Marine officer from the Taiwanese um, Marine Corps um, uh, who played a, a few times and gave us some great uh, insights about the geography and things that we were missing about um, the navigability of the, the mountains uh, in particular and, and what some of these beaches look like. Um, and uh, we just ran, Eric and I just ran this, uh, this the game in uh, Tokyo for the last week with the Sasakawa Peace Foundation. Um, so it, it's, it's interesting to see um, how uh, right people from different backgrounds approach the problem, but that you're fundamentally constrained. I think that, you know, different cultural backgrounds are more relevant in a, uh, in a competition phase. Um, you know, there's a lot more uh, ideas, you know, room for diversity of ideas, but that uh, once once you start firing missiles and launching air sorties at each each other, you're sort of governed by some hard physics about missiles and and um, uh, and aircraft ranges, uh, as Dan Dan was talking about. Thank you, Dan. Any were there any uh, any of those representatives in your game at all you'd want to talk about or or discuss their inputs? No, not really. Uh, unfortunately. It would have been great to play with the, some folks from either Taiwan or Japan. Um, but I think, you know, just speaking more broadly, the class that I just wrapped up teaching at Marine Corps University, China's Grand Strategy, there is, when it comes to different phases of this, even pre-conflict or even post-conflict, right? There's different ways of looking at it and gaming out how does China and the U.S. still compete even after something like Taiwan pops off that it's hard to wrap your mind around unless you understand the cultural components too. So I think Matt, your efforts in Japan are fantastic and it would be awesome if you could tour that around to many of those as a Southeast Asian or even Northeast Asian countries and see how each side looks at the issue. And I think that would give us a more robust and holistic view of how we can get after the problem from the US side. All right, next question from Nate that I'm gonna pull in here and uh, this goes into any you know potential insights or or lessons, um, and I'm going to go Marine Corps specific here to the audience. If you're not Marine Corps, if you don't, uh, if that's not your thing, then uh, you can tune out the next five minutes or so. But uh, insights in terms of how how the MLRs were employed, where they could be employed, um, as as well as not just the MLR, but some of the other Force Design 2030 initiatives that are going on across the Marine Corps, because the MLR is just like one. Uh, one piece of the larger project here. And obviously I realized this, like this game was not intended to test out those concepts. Like this is a, a theater thing and, you know, Marines are only going to be a part of that, a smaller part of that anyway. But uh, was there anything that came up or that you could expand on here from the iterations that were run? Yeah, so I, I guess I'll, uh, you know, there's obviously a lot of bitter, there's two bitterly opposed camps, it seems like on Forces on 2030. So I, I, I'm trying not to offend anyone, but um, it, it, I think it's, really uh good that the marine corps is oriented on this fight uh the problem is just moving forces moving ground forces within um within any for any side is just is just very difficult in this age of long range precision strike 
Um, and so when you talk about uh, let's get a ship to um, you know with to an island that's within a hundred kilometers of of where Chinese ships are going to be, and then we'll offload a um, and we'll, we'll offload a, a you know a JLTV with missiles on it, and then have the missiles JLTV fire. It's, it's sort of um, the question arises: well, Why wouldn't you just have the ship fire the missiles in the first place? That's just firing the missiles with extra steps. Certainly, so the primary advantage is if if you're able to be somewhere in the in the first place uh, with those ground forces, because then you blend into the ground cover, right? And you're much much more survivable. Problem is the the, the political realities and asking around, you know, about expert Chinese experts uh, like Dan and others, like you know, what what do you think about putting Marines on on Taiwan beforehand? You know, no, you got a pretty hard. Uh, I mean, maybe the U.S. will decide to effectively. Declare war on China and and put soldiers uh, and Marines on on Taiwan, uh, and that would be militarily operationally very beneficial. But that it's just um, obviously has great political risks. I think that the the MLR is a good asset to have. I, it's certainly better for this scenario than a um, you know than a traditional uh, MU or. Uh, but that if you're talking about how many of these we should have, how much we should redesign the force structure towards this, uh, probably not, uh, you don't need the whole force structure to be designed around this because you sort of get uh, limited utility out of it. So, um, you know, I, I sort of come down in the middle of like, yeah, let's let's have some force design 2030, particularly if you're in Okinawa, and then, you know, you roll the political dice, you never know what's going to happen beforehand. Um, you know, we're not the policy makers. And, but that uh, that sort of banking the whole Marine Corps around the the idea and getting rid of the ability to take care of other other contingencies is is probably harmful. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we're you know just from what I've seen, I don't think we're going that way anyway. But it's the uh, yeah the focus on you know for one of the one of the maps at least out there um, to have those as a possible asset. And, you know, uh, I, I guess like you said, better to have it than not have it out there at least. Um, Dan, in your scenario, were there any any specific uh, again, sorry, everyone else, but uh, Marine Corps centric lessons or or insights that you got out of the game that you played. Speaking about the game, not particularly. I am not a Force Design 2030 expert. You guys are well well versed in that. Uh, I'm still trying to just be okay in in Marine Corps University and uh, stick to China stuff for this point in time. Don't want to get involved in the debate around 2030, but I will throw this out there. Um, I just wrapped up a workshop with the Hudson Institute and it was uh, focused on trying to figure out ways to dissuade China. And there's a bottom line in the information world whenever you're looking at ground forces within Asia writ large. Um, and we'll stick, I guess we'll stick with the Philippines for this, is that if you put U.S. forces anywhere on the Philippines specifically, there's always the odd chance that somebody walking around with a cell phone will snap a photo of U.S. forces there and send it off to their friend group. Uh, and then that information, because China controls a lot of the information, will eventually trickle its way over to China and they'll know where you're positioned. Um, so I want to credit Mike Dom for pointing that one out. But uh, that's something that we need to take into consideration when we're thinking about you know, if you have ground-based forces within China's strike range and they know that they're there, they're being held at risk. 
So it is a very, very difficult problem to get over, not only just getting forces over there in the first part, but also maintaining or at least obfuscating that they are there because otherwise they're going to be held at risk. Yeah, and I think that that's a, um, a point to bring out as well to maybe not to those you know, newer deployments to, to an expanded presence in the Philippines, but to those established bases, like, you know, the places in like Okinawa or Guam or, uh, you know, Iwakuni, things like that. Like, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, anecdotal speculation, but I'm, I'm hundred percent confident that, you know, the, somebody in China knows how many rivets run each of the, you know, the F-35s or the, um, you know, the F-22, or I guess we don't have F-22s anymore out of Kadena. You know, we, and we used to joke, I was based out of Futama for one of my UDPs. And we're like, we knew there was somebody like right outside the fence line, just like taking notes through binoculars every time we went to do a training mission. So yeah, that, that, that's, that kind of stuff is already at risk. Um, so I'd imagine inserting anything new, you'd want to keep it murky at least as long as you could, but that's definitely hard when they probably have, as you said, all kinds of, you know, just open source collection capabilities there. Um, okay. Moving on. Next question. I'll try and get through a couple more and then um, let's just take a look at the time. Um, we'll get wrapping it up here in about an, uh, at the hour. So um, from Aaron Danis, and this gets into what is like, obviously like a huge consideration in this, and that's the logistics of this, this first battle here, right. For both sides. So a question is for, for both players, you know, red and blue, when did you, when did they run out of initial stockpiles of munitions you know, um, or was there, was there any attempt to sort of um, manage expenditures so that you would have maybe more, you know, on the, you know, week three and onward rather than shooting everything in weeks one and two? Um, or, you know, so, so what were some of those, some of those lessons and some of those insights specifically about the, the initial logistics lay down and then how you could, how or how much, if any, you could resupply after the initial expenditures? Yeah. So um, I'll start with China's logistic difficulties, which are, which are massive, right? You've got to move uh, a bunch of people. If you just look at the first three days, this looks really good for China, right? Because <laughs> you've got this huge amphibious fleet. You can move a bunch of people onto Taiwan. Uh, you've got a whole range of missiles. You can cover all of the military airfields in, in Honshu and Kyushu several times over. Um, so, you know, life looks great, but then you're going to run out of missiles. And we, obviously we have to estimate from uh, the CMPR about what those missile numbers are, um, but that becomes very difficult. And then you've got to resupply these these troops that you've moved over onto Taiwan. And you look at Normandy and Okinawa, and uh, the, these historic invasions require constant streams, uh, and the offload rate is always much lower than you, you think it's supposed to be. So uh, China has huge logistic problems that, that make the, uh, you know, day four look different, very different than day three. Um, on the U.S. side, uh, abs you know, right, this is part of the, another question. Even if you had an MLR on Taiwan, unless you brought over set lots of reloads for them, um, they're going to run out of missiles very quickly. So if you had an MLR of 18 uh, with 18 Nemesis, 36, uh, that's 36 missiles in the tubes, you brought over, um, say, two reloads, that's 100 missiles, which is, you know, great. That's nothing, not anything to sneeze at. But a, a, a squad, you know, 12 B-52s is coming over uh, with, what, 450 missiles, 450 JASM? Like, um, you know, so one, uh, one MLR 
uh, is, 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 is not going to probably have that's deployed forward to, to stick with the Marine Corps theme is probably not going to have the, the firepower uh, that we're looking at in this contingency, right? There are other contingencies and we're just looking at one amphibious invasion of Taiwan. Um, and then, I mean, in terms of global U.S. stockpiles, they're, they're woefully inadequate um, in terms of long range anti-ship cruise missiles. Uh, we have a, we're building this huge inventory of JASM-ER, the long range um, anti, uh, that's a land attack cruise missile, but that um, its ability to strike maritime targets is is, is not clear. Uh, there's certainly no new statements that they're trying to pre reprogram a lot of them to to do that. Um, but that this this mission of uh, attacking ships, uh, the, the Air Force hasn't really brought it on board um, as much as they, they should. And that that really needs to become the, the main focus for them. Thanks. And then Dan, for, for your game, what were your what, what was going on with your logistics there for the for both players? Honestly, I think Matt covered it pretty well. The same idea happened in our game. China shot a bunch of their missiles off originally, their longer range ones. So, like I said, the ones that could strike Guam. Um, but then very quickly, they had very few of those left. Uh, they still had some of their longer range anti-ship missiles, which kept carriers at bay. And then once Japan, you know, once we had enough assets on Japan and they decided, okay, let's bring Japan into the fight. Uh, they very, very quickly had at least one or two runs over each of the airstrips that they wanted to target. Um, but that was largely it, right? And then after that, and this is where with uh, with Matt's war game, the time really played into account was that after, we'll call it week two, after the airstrike, uh, the airstrikes on the Japanese airfields, then there were no missiles to actually strike anything that we as the blue side flowed onto the eye the islands after we did some you know, rapid runway repair. And then we could operate pretty freely out of Japan. Um, so that was an interesting lesson. You know, if you can bait it out and absorb that first strike without losing too many of your own blue assets, then you can follow on and really flood the, uh, at least the airspace over Taiwan and eventually have blue dominance in the airspace there. Um, and then that applies also to ships, right? There's only so many anti-ship missiles that China does have that they can shoot. And if you have more ships than missiles, and it's not a one for one trade-off, right? Like not every single missile hits or has the desired effect, then you can eventually flow enough forces. And that's honestly, that's where the strength of blue lies, right? It's having enough forces to be able to flow to a theater over a period of time um, to actually achieve the objective. Whereas red is right now at least is very much positioned for a short fast fight and you know they call it uh winning was it local informationized wars so local means just constraining it to a specific geographic area and also making sure that there's limited players in the fight and they want to win or fight and win very very quickly um, which in this type of scenario does not end up happening great thank you both Okay, I got one last question and then I'll, I'll turn it back to both of you gentlemen for any closing comments you want to make. But this kind of, I'm getting away from outcomes of the scenarios and more to get your insights and thoughts on sort of the construct and method of this war game, which were these series of games, which was, you know, unclassified, done on open source, you know, openly available, publicly available data. And, you know, it's, it's still the way it was executed, you know, in, in multiple iterations it 
generated a lot of a lot of data that we could chew on and have this sort of open discussion. So I guess um, a question kind of is based on how this came out, is this something that, you know, other parts of either the the DOD or sort of larger national security enterprise should look at doing more of these in this construct to, you know, one, it's probably easier, like it's easier to, to pull together open source data to build something than have to go through and, you know, figure out what's classified and see if you need to classify it. You know, I think there there's also the fact that we're here talking about it, there's a level of, you know, sort of transparency and access to a wider audience for that. You know, but do you, so do you think that the, the, the value of this is something that should be um, potentially done more looking at this problem set so we can have these kinds of discussions and, uh, and also, you know, bringing other people into the room who may not necessarily be able to get access to the room and share insights if it's at a higher level of classification. Yeah, um, I think that bringing uh, the war, war gaming, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate about what's the purpose of war game, what is a war game, what isn't. Um, we try to, uh, I think there's, we try to categorize war games by purpose and having an analytical war game like this that's not played for player education, that's not played for an enjoyment, that's um, not not played for a political military. Um, we're gonna, you know, brainstorm new ideas. I, I think this is a, a I, we we would like to argue that it's a valid form of war gaming. Um, John Compton from uh, Cape uh, OSD Cape has has written a little bit about this and given some talks. Uh, and I, I absolutely think uh, we're in great agreement with him uh, about the need for iterated analytic war games where uh, it's not designed to be a whole experience that people will come together and, and enjoy, but that it, it, it's uh, an analytic exercise. I think that um, it, it certainly is better to uh, for policymakers to be informed uh, by secret level and, and TS level games so um, that if if DOD, uh, uh, that DOD would be well served to have more of these and where you can refine different PKs based on op real uh, operational testing data um, and secret sources. So um, I definitely think that this is a tool that should be going forward. Thanks, Dan. Anything to add to that? One thing that I would add is, Matt, maybe for you is very analytical and not so fun, but, you know, playing one iteration of it, that was pretty fun. So I think there was good value in that. Um, beyond that, I do think that there's value in having this kind of war game with the policy community, because I, I feel generally speaking that sometimes it's difficult to get policymakers and uh, no kidding war fighters like you gentlemen in the room and have conversations and run through things together. Um, it seems like at least war gaming a lot of times is mainly the military community or some avid fans within the policy realm, but having this kind of forum for that discussion, I believe is very beneficial and helps us really get after thinking through this on, as a whole of government or whole of society. Great, all right, thanks Thanks to both of you. So we've been going for about an hour. Uh, I do wanna respect everybody's time. So um, any final closing thoughts from either of you before we wrap up here? Yeah, I just say this isn't the final word and this isn't all encompassing. There's there's so much um, more research to be done, even on the military problem. Like, what does the South China Sea fight look like? What does a blockade scenario look like? What does a Senkaku scenario look like? How are these all different? Um, I think that, uh, you know, there's scope for a project of this size to be done about any number of those contingencies. And that's just like 
off the top of your head, military contingencies involving China. These could be done for for other ones. And so definitely don't want people to to walk away with like, well, we've we've done that. Good, good. No, nobody needs to look at, at China military scenarios ever again. Um, so I definitely look forward to people uh, building on on what we've done and, and taking it to the next level. So final thoughts. Uh, once again, Matt, great job on the war game. It was honestly a lot of fun to play and I think has helped bring the debate within the media to a higher level, thinking through these things analytically, really getting after the problem. Um, I also wanna say, Ian, I know the Krulak Center and especially under your leadership, we are getting after trying to war game the different scenarios like Senkaku's, the South China Sea. So hopefully that can really expand out a little bit farther uh, into the broader community as well. And there's obviously some natural synergy between the work that you two do. So uh, thanks again for having me on and hopefully we can uh, continue to get after this difficult problem. Great, thanks, Dan. And yeah, at, at the Krulak Center where, you know, one of our mottos probably should be like ABG, always be gaming. And uh, certainly standing invitation to Matt anytime you want to come down and throw out something on this scenario or we, uh, Dan can tell you, I have a cubicle full of all kinds of other things we could throw it on the table and, and explore different stuff. All right. Well, uh, to both of you gentlemen, thank you very much for taking the time to do this. I'm so glad uh, we're able to pull this together because it's definitely, uh, you know, it's a really, really timely discussion on a, on a potential future challenge that, you know, certainly on the Marine Corps side, preparing for is a possible thing to look at. You know, but also as as the game shows, like everybody's going to be, you know, Navy, Air Force, um, and and all kinds of other uh, people are going to be involved in this, and it's going to be uh, truly a, a joint problem that has to be looked at. We're definitely going to. I'll I'll put the link to the report again into the show notes once we actually publish this uh, to the audience. Thank you as well for joining us. I also like to say, like this has been uh, th this is the the second brewcast I've done this week, and and we're not done yet, but. I've had a chance uh, on both of the last ones this week to talk to former Marines who've gone on to do great things. Uh, you know, both of them, you know, Matt, yourself, you've got your, your PhD and our guest on Monday who talked to us about the combined action program in Vietnam. He's a, he's a PhD student. So, hey, all you Marines out there, you know, the, the, these are some of the things you can do after you get out. And it's pretty remarkable, you know, the impact and the problems that you can study once you get out. So something to look forward to. And then uh, speaking of things to look forward to as well, we're not done yet on the broadcast for this week. So to our audience tomorrow, you want to talk about training and education in the Marine Corps and in the years to come, we're going to have a couple of Marines from Training and Education Command to help dig into some of the meat of the new Training and Education 2030 report, which is kind of the third leg of the triad of larger concepts that are supporting the overall force design 2030 project under the under the commandant's planning guidance so please uh please join us for that it's going to be a good discussion as well just like this one was so again thank you all and uh please make sure you join us for the next episode thanks for joining us as always we depend on support and feedback from the team crew community to constantly improve our offerings and reach a wider audience so if you have feedback on this episode please take a moment to fill out the survey linked in the show notes to help us do better also, if you enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button and subscribe to our channel on YouTube or leave us a review on the podcast app of your choice. It truly does help us reach a wider audience. Thank you as always for your support and we'll see you on the next episode. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.